distant corners of our planet are becoming more accessible than ever before. Today we're zipping off on trips to places our grandparents could only imagine. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. With the world increasingly becoming our playground and our increasingly high-powered lives crying out for recess, more and more people are bitten by that old travel bug. Of course, scratching those travel bug bites requires dealing with a little reality. We Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world, and our dollar just isn't what it used to be. Still, we can all enjoy great travels without going broke if we travel smartly. Together, we can have a lifetime of travel ahead of us, starting with this next hour. Stay with us for fascinating interviews with travel experts and lots of calls from our globe-trotting listeners as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. The world may be getting smaller, but so is the buying power of many Americans, as the dollar falls in value against other key currencies. Is that keeping us home? No way. You just have to be smarter and better prepared. This week on Travel with Rick Steves, I'll introduce you to the woman who books my travel. And we'll get some tips on travel to Egypt. And we'll be taking your calls and emails. 877-333-RICK. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And we got Eric on the phone in Seattle. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So what are you thinking about? Well, my question is in regards to a trip I'm planning for. This would be one week of a two-week trip. And I want to spend it in the southwest of France. And I know that you write extensively in your book about the Dordogne, mm-hmm. uh, specifically around like Sarlat and uh, Bagnac. Right. Um, and so that area uh, very much interests me. Uh, but I'm also looking uh, south of there in the Lot. Is it Lot or Lot? I don't know how you pronounce it in French. But anyway, right. the Lot River Valley. Which you do mention as like a you know a three triangle uh, location, but but don't talk extensively about it. And so I'm asking because I'm I'm trying to select a home base. I do want to spend some time in both areas. Um, there's a, a gîte that I'm looking at for a week in Puy-l'Evêque, which is about 20 minutes west of Cahors, right on the Lot River there. And right. I'm wondering a couple questions. First of all, how different are the Dordogne and the Lot River Valleys? Uh, is it important to see both? Uh, are they very similar? Also, which would which would be the better kind of home base to see the sites in the area? And also, uh, how difficult or time-consuming would it be to travel in between the two? Boy, are you going to have a car? We are going to have a car, yes. Well, if you have a car, you're okay. One reason why both of those areas are so sort of pristine is because they are not served very well by the great train system of France, and uh, nor are they served as well by the super freeways and so on. So it takes a longer time to get there. Okay. But once you're there, the distances are relatively uh, short, and there's a lot of sites nearby. Now, i got to say, I don't know the Lot River very well at all. Um, Cahors is a beautiful stop, mm-hmm. but I was most charmed by the Dordogne. Mm. I can't give you a real comparison between the two because I don't know a lot well enough. But okay. uh, the Dordogne to me is, it just stole my heart. One of, one of my most relaxing, enjoyable days in all of Europe one year was uh, canoeing down the Dordogne River. Mm. And of course, you've got uh, this wonderful um, small town, rural farm kind of culture. It's very charming to the British. Lots of English people go down there mm-hmm. and they just gobble up all that uh, foie gras, you know, <laughs> and uh, the, the goose liver pate. And uh, incredible castles. And you've got, of course, the um, prehistoric cave paintings. And uh, are you interested in those at all? Absolutely. Yeah, these are incredible. And you've got to make, you need to really, if you're into that, if you're going all the way there and and that's a high on your list of uh, sightseeing experiences, read the material very carefully. Because the most famous caves, like Les Gaux caves, you can't even get in to see the real thing. But they've created beautiful copy caves right next to it. And you go into the copycat caves and they're essentially the same experience, but they just have realized when the Lesco Caves were open, they were open just for a relatively short time in that decade or generation that they were open, they experienced more deterioration than in the 20,000 years or whatever that they were uh, locked, closed up and forgotten. Oh, I see. And uh, they realized just from an art history point of view, we can't continue to uh, let them experience this deterioration. It wasn't malicious vandalism. It was just 
crowds of tourists going in there with their flash attachments and their heavy breathing, you know, change the humidity. And a lot of people poo-poo this thing about no flash, no flash uh, pictures in a museum or in a, in a place where you have fragile art like these 20,000-year-old uh, cave paintings. But the, the uh, one flash, they say, is the equivalent of about three days of sunshine. Mm. And that, you know, if you've ever had furniture that just has, a, I have a piano lid that's halfway open, and boy, where, where it's open, you've got a stripe on your piano. Well, the same thing happens with sun hitting art or flashes hitting art. So when they say no flashes, they really mean it. And when people ignore that, then they start getting surly about anybody taking cameras in at all, or they don't even let you go into the caves at all, and they make copycat caves. But the most famous caves are um, not available unless you're a, like a professor or something like this, but the hordes get to see the copy caves, which really are worth the trouble. But there are um, sort of lesser caves that you can actually see the real thing, and I find them just fascinating. So enjoy that on your trip. Okay, definitely. I know you mentioned several caves, and so yeah. some of them it seems that uh, can get the tours can get pretty crowded in the summer. Yeah, it's um, you've got with your car, you're in a good shape because they're a little bit. Um, they're not very state of the art in their reservation policies, by my memory. So you need to actually physically swing by in the morning and sign up for a tour, intending to kill time, meaning you're going to go somewhere else and see something else and come back. Mm-hmm. But um, read the tips in the guidebooks and. And it'll probably advise be there just when the gate opens or when the box office opens. Okay. And then you get your name on the list, and they'll say, come back at 2 o'clock, because they only let, say, 15 people in every half hour. Okay. See. okay. And, and by, by 11 o'clock, perhaps all of the allotted uh, uh, appointments for that day are finished. And they might not even be taken ones for tomorrow. So they require you to come in early and sign up. I see. And you have to do that in person? In my in my experience, you have, yeah. Okay. It might be changing next year because it seems a little antiquated, but uh, maybe they do it for a reason. I don't okay. know. But but it's a fascinating area, and uh, I don't think you can go wrong with the Dordogne. Okay. Now, would you be concerned about particularly like, you know, first week in July, having some of the more popular areas being yes. super crowded? Yes. yes. Europe, okay. France, and Italy, and the Alps, and all these key tourist areas are jam-packed in July and August. Okay. It doesn't mean it's going to be miserable. It means you've got to be on the ball. Um, I like the summer, but in most of my experience, it's the summer, but you've got to be able to anticipate crowds. And in that case, you need to make reservations for your hotels. And especially if you're using a my guidebook or one of the guidebooks, realize those hotels are likely to fill up early because all the readers are going with the same listings. Right, right. Either if you get aced out of the top listings, don't worry about it. Go lower on the listings. They're all fine values. Paris has, France has wonderful values for hotels. But nail your listings down and then... Be sure to always telephone a day or two in advance to reconfirm your reservation because there are so many reasons that things can get messed up. And, you know, if you just say the hotel uh, screwed up your trip, that doesn't accomplish anything. Your trip was screwed up. You, know? <laughs> right, you need to right. be proactive to make sure things go smoothly. And that means uh, even if you have a fax that says you're reconfirmed and everything, you still want to call a day before and confirm your hotel to make sure they know you're for real and you're coming. Okay. Okay. Good luck in your trip. All right. Thank you, Rick. And thanks for your call. Bye Thank now. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm. And we've got Margaret on the phone in Wisconsin. La Crosse, how are you doing? Very fine, thank you. What is your question? We have traveled since the mid-80s in Germany. I am first-generation American here. My parents came from Bavaria and have rented cars with no problems at all. And we're thinking of making a trip again, but we are here in our late 70s. Are there age restrictions uh, as far as, or does it depend upon the rental agencies? Well, as far as I know, only Britain and Ireland have a maximum age limit, and that is 75. Okay, okay. But some rental car companies enforce age limits of their own. Mm-hmm. So legally, uh, the latest information I've got on that is Britain and Ireland have that 75-year-old age limit. But otherwise, just make sure the car rental company knows your age when you rent the car. Oh, definitely. Because definitely. you don't want to try to get a little fait accompli in there or you'll have the rude awakening when you get there because they're going to look at your passport for sure. <laughs> and they're going to say, oh, boy, we don't rent to people that are over 75 or whatever. Yes, I can understand that. Yeah. My family relatives are all in Bavaria. So you're going to be traveling in Bavaria on this next trip? We uh, don't have definite plans, but mm-hmm. you know, we do get together with them. We either take a tour and mm-hmm. spin off on our own and and visit Good. family, and then we will rent a car, you know, for for some time. And you know, the one thing I, the one thing for retired travelers to consider, I think, is the most grueling thing about European travel these days is the heat and the crowds of summer. Oh, is that the truth? We found that too. 
and we have been in Europe in the summer in the oh man goodness well you know well it's cooking yeah this <laughs> last year was the first year in my life that I've actually ever changed hotels because I couldn't sleep at night because of the heat because I had no air conditioning that's what happened to us we even went in the all together when we were in Rudesheim one time <laughs> In our rooms, that is. In your rooms, okay. Well, that's one one way to... What I do is I take the sheets into the shower with me. I've heard that. And then I lay the wet sheets on top of me with the fan blowing on it. <laughs> and then hopefully by the time my sheets are dry and it's hot again, I'm sound asleep. Oh, dear. And well, whatever it takes. But it's worth the trouble, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, All it is. All right. Well, good good luck in your travels. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your call. Bye now. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. If you want to get in on the conversation, we'd love to talk to you. Give us a ring. Our phone number is one eight seven seven three 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 rick Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Rich emails us from San Jose, California. And Rich writes, I'm planning a trip to Paris, Provence, and Cinque Terre this fall. I'm doing this on purpose in an attempt to avoid the crowds. Do you have any advice for me regarding the weather? How far can I push into the fall and still have nice weather? Is there any local issues I may run into by delaying the trip after Labor Day? Okay, Rich is going to Paris, South France, and uh, the Italian Riviera, and he wants to avoid the crowds by going off-season. And Rich, those are three areas that are very crowded, and they're plenty hot in the summer, Personally, I would sacrifice the sunbathing weather to get rid of the crowds, and I'd go as late into the fall as you can. Uh, You might be uh, rudely awakened to the fact that Paris is more crowded in September than it is in July and August because that's a convention month in Paris. Other than that, I think September and October would be ideal. Going into the Cinque Terre in October would be great. Cinque Terre, the the Italian Riviera and Provence are very crowded in August and September. Not so bad in August or October. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, and traveler's haiku. We just want to hear how travel has brought out the poet in you. We'll read our favorites on the air. If what you send makes it on our show, we'll send you a gift certificate worth $20 to use in the travel store at ricksteves.com. Here are a few haiku we've already received from our traveling listeners. Rick, we have two haiku submissions today. Julie Cohen is here to read them for us. The first one was sent in by Lori Swindler of Bloomington, Illinois. Flying above clouds, filled with anticipation... I begin my dream. This one comes to us from Vicki Bartlett of Gresham, Oregon. The best souvenir. Pizza, pasta, gelato. Brought home on my hips. So again, we're looking for your submissions. Write up a paragraph or two about where you live. Record a minute or two of natural sound that makes an intriguing audio postcard. Or write us a haiku and send your submissions to radio at ricksteves.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. For all the details, see ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Imagine travel in Egypt. Climbing into the pyramids, cruising the Nile, sucking on a hubbly-bubbly, finding your own oasis. We'll explore the wonders of Egypt next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling to Egypt, and this is a place that is so accessible to where so many people go, but not many Americans go to Egypt. I've got with me a man who went to Egypt and stayed there. He's a tour guide uh, with me at Europe Through the Back Door. He's from Edinburgh. He ended up in Egypt, and uh, today he helps us with our tours all over the Mediterranean part of Europe. Colin Clement. Colin, thanks for being with us. No, it's a pleasure. Nice to be here. How did a Scotsman like you end up in Egypt? I initially went there as a teacher in the 1980s. I traveled a lot in various countries. I found it a good way to travel. You go to a country, you can find a job teaching English. So you taught English uh, as a second language? As a second, as, actually, it was, it was supposed to be in an English medium school in Alexandria, but the standard of it, it was mostly second language teaching. Yeah. And now, you, how long have you lived in Alexandria? Now, 15 years. Okay, wow. So you, uh, you're almost a local. Uh, well, that's the nice thing about Alexandria is that you can become an Alexandrian much easier than it is to become a Kyrene, for example. Is that right? Yeah. A resident of Cairo. Yeah. Well, you still look Scottish to me. <laughs> <laughs> Most people, when they're thinking of Egypt, they're going for pharaohs and pyramids and mummies, right? Absolutely. That's everybody goes there. You know, pyramids is the first thing that comes to mind. But there's an awful lot more. I mean, it is one of the biggest, well, the biggest city in Africa, the biggest city in the Middle East. Cairo. Cairo is indeed, yeah. yeah. It seemed um, to me like an urban jungle. I was just enthralled by the place. I've been there a couple of times, and every day I would just walk in a different direction and have endless things to be entertained by. Well, absolutely. There's a huge variety there. I mean, it is a bit of an urban jungle. I'm, you know, it's, nobody knows the true population of the time. But you can go from the pyramids, which are just outside, to the National Museum, which is one of the great museums of the world, and then you can go to fantastic nightclubs where it's miniskirts and sunglasses indoors and, and drinks. You know, there's, it's not a... It's not a conservative place in certain That's right, level. because in Muslim Egypt, the devout Muslims wouldn't be drinking, yes, right? Yes, devout Muslims wouldn't be drinking. So yeah. you've got this wild uh, contemporary uh, club scene. Mm. You've got the pharaohs and the pyramids and the museums. You've got the sort of labyrinthine markets. Absolutely. You've got old, uh, old uh, Islamic Cairo, which one is a fantastic Islamic place. Cairo. That, you yeah. know, when I was in Cairo, I went there on my first time, and one of my favorite treats was just to hop in a taxi. And he'd crank up his music, mm-hmm. roll down the music. The right. music's blaring. It's an old car. It's a ramshackle yeah. car. And you're just careening through these yeah. incredible scenes yeah. in Islamic Cairo. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah that's the, the, the city of a thousand minarets. I mean, it is yeah. incredible. I came back years later with my TV crew for PBS, and uh, we just went in a cab just like that and, and uh, rolled down the window and let it roll, and it was just great footage. <laughs> yeah. So there's a cheap trick for you. Absolutely. Cost yeah. you a couple bucks, and you got yourself a tour. Dead easy to get a Cairo, a Cairo taxi driver just to take you around for the day. And then you see some guys sitting uh, on little tiny stools with these uh, hubbly bubblies or shisha. Shisha, they call them there, yeah. And what are they smoking? It's, it's a tobacco that's been steeped in, in molasses, sometimes flavored with apples, sometimes flavored with pears. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a national pastime. This is a, a guy thing to do? You're just sitting there sucking on your pipe? It's becoming a girl thing. Is that right? As well, yeah. Huh. And there's, it's quite interesting. Some of the newspapers are outraged by the fact that women should be doing this. Other newspapers are saying this is a sign of our modernity. Hey, what a wonderful way to slow down and uh, just sort of feel the pulse of the local community there. Sit in a, what is it, a, just a smoke, what do they call it, a, a tea house? Ahwa. Ahwa, which literally translates as, as cafe. Cafe. Sit yeah. in a cafe and they've got the, uh, so a tourist would sit in there and have a cafe, a chai, I suppose. You say. Yeah, chai, tea, or ahwa, the coffee. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then uh, you'd see all these other people sucking on their hubbly bubblies. And you kind of wonder what's going on. Well, it's just apple-flavored tobacco, right? Oh, yes. It's, it's nothing it's more nothing, noxious than that. Nothing, no, 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 nothing no, more no. exciting than that. No. So uh, you can, for a few pennies, I would imagine, they'd bring one over for you. Oh, uh, yeah. The equivalent, uh, yes, it would be a few pennies, really. You, Give me the lesson here. Could I just sit down and do this without being a fool, or how, how do you do it? What's no, the absolutely. Reason? You just ask for a shisha, you know, bring, and they will bring you across a, the big pipe yeah. and a bowl, which is stuffed with the, uh, the, the tobacco mixture, and then hot coals you place on top. And it's just a way to pass the time. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a great cafe society, and this is that's one of the things you do. I loved Cairo. I remember I went out to Giza, to mm-hmm. the pyramids, and uh, these these pyramids, first of all, are just incredible. What do they they go back to uh, two thousand BC, something oh, like this? Three, three thousand BC. Three four. Th- first, the first pyramid, I believe, uh, was the Step Pyramid at Saqqara. At, at Saqqara, yeah. And I, I think that who went five thousand years ago. The first the first mm-hmm. pharaohs were. 5,000 years ago. I think Zakhar was 2750, I believe, or something like that. And then you've got the three famous pyramids at Giza, mm-hmm. and you can go into the very middle of these pyramids. Yeah. And somebody told me there's a story when you're in the very center of the biggest pyramid. Uh, I've been in there once and found it a rather claustrophobic and sticky experience. And yeah. it, uh, I don't know. It's quite something. It's, it's, uh, I was there at sunrise, and they were had, uh, the guys were bringing their camels out, and it's just a, a, I thought it was a magical experience. And then I heard music. 
And I just walked into the village there that was outside. I mean, left all the mm-hmm. tourists. And I was a guest of honor at a wedding festival. Mm. And they were just thrilled to have me drop in. Oh, the Egyptians are so hugely uh, hospitable. I mean, overwhelmingly hospitable that you can fall into family situations in a way that is less and less possible within Europe. And Northern Mediterranean, yes, but certainly within Arab lands, you're forever welcomed in. And I think it's very important to tuck away your guidebook and uh, Absolutely, and yeah. just wander, wander Absolutely, the streets. Yeah. Now, from Cairo, most people are going to want to go to Cairo and Luxor. Yes. Because Luxor has got Amit Mutkansu and all yeah, of the yeah. great temples. Yeah. Karnak, we know Karnak, Karnak and yeah. so on. Yeah, and uh, the way to get down there is you can fly, you can take the train, or you mm-hmm. can take the boat. Or you can, yeah, you can take cruises down there. Yeah. Cruising down. Uh, what, yeah. what do you recommend? Uh, it depends on your budget. Mm-hmm. It depends on your time. Flying is reasonable? Flying flying is reasonable. Well, it's quite expensive for, for foreigners. If you're a resident, you get cheap price. Well, there's, two, there's two price standards. Oh, yes. That's for airplanes, there, there is a resident price and a, and a, and a, and wow. a foreigner price. Ballpark would probably cost what? Uh, $250, in fact. $250? For a return flight to Luxor, $250. Round trip? Round trip, yeah. For an American? Yeah. Well, that won't break the bank. No, 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 no. So, bank, yeah. so that's the efficient way to get there in an that's hour. That's the fast way, yeah. Okay, that. or I took the overnight train, which was actually quite scenic and nice. I think that's a good way to go, actually, because you're, you're with Egyptians. Yeah. You know, you're spending 14 hours or so on an overnight train. You're going to meet people. Uh, you're going to hang out, share food, share drinks, see it's, the scenery. Exactly. I had a lovely time. I had a mm-hmm. magical time. And I arrived at about 5.30 or 6 in the morning. I got set up in my hotel. The hotel wasn't ready for me, so I just had to leave my bag there because the people were still sleeping, whose room I was going to ultimately have. But I had a reservation there. I left my bags, and I had the glorious three or four hours before the sun was up to enjoy the sights before it got really hot. Before it gets hot, yeah. You had to pick the time of year when you're going there. Now, I was there. I'm not very good at picking the time of year. I was there in the summer, and it was hot. Now, you've lived a few summers in in Egypt? Well, 15. 15 of them, yeah. yeah. You get up early. If you're a sightseer... Well, if if you're sightseeing in the the summer months, you want to get up early, and then you you, you know by half past 11... You're back home in your hotel. You're resting until you're done. four. Yeah. That's it. And, and when I was in Egypt in the summer, I would sight had a good four hours of sightseeing very early, get back to the hotel, and then you lay low in the shade and siesta and so on. Four o'clock, five o'clock, whatever, you come out again. And out. then you got the magic hour and you got the evening and people are out till late. Absolutely. People stay up late, yeah. It's a beautiful way to go. Mm-hmm. But you should pay attention to that because you don't want to burn yourself out. You can, that heat. From the heat? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't want to be out in the sun. In no. The middle. No, no, Nobody's out in the middle no. of the day. Oh. No. Now, for me, Luxor is a, 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 a nice little town, a very comfortable town. I remember the uh, taxis uh, on a horse, little horse carriage taxis and so on, and lots of tourist amenities, so it's a pretty touristy place. But you cross the river, and you get this wonderland of sites, incredible sites. Oh, yeah. You want to, you've got to, well, you've got to get across the river. You've got to go to Medin Habu, to Ramasayum, the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens. I mean, those are, those are definitely, you know, those are must-sees. And I would recommend Americans to remember, your buying power is huge. You go over there, you can hire a local guide mm-hmm. who's going to be absolutely thrilled to be able to charge you double for a day's work probably mm, and you still can't believe how cheap it is. Yeah. And you get yourself an English-speaking expert who will shield you from all the hustlers. But you get an accredited guide. Okay. How do we know? Uh, you, go, you can either go through the museums you can go through the tourist police. What's the alternative? The alternative is a tout. A tout. Yeah. And now, be, you know, there's plenty of people down there who will be happy to show you around but don't necessarily know anything. Is that right? Yeah. And um, rather than showing you what you really want to see... They'll be taking you into shops to sell Shopping. you unwanted you know, trinkets and you can buy. And a, you can probably buy a, a beautiful fake antique. Uh, you can buy ugly fake antiques as well. I mean, there's a lot, lot of money going around. Yeah. And anywhere you go shopping with your tout, you're, oh, you're going to have a inflated he's going to get kickback. You're going to get inflated prices. I mean, Lux. One has to remember, Luxor is one of the big archaeological sites of the world. So you get tons and tons of people going in there. So unfortunately, you get a conjunction, perhaps, of slightly unsavvy travelers. And very sharp locals. Interesting. So there's a lot of very green tourists coming in that are filthy rich. Mm-hmm. And ev- anyone who's there is by definition filthy rich for the Egyptians. Yeah, every tout. Yeah. Just, they, they just see dollar signs when you walk down Absolutely, the street. So yeah. look out. Absolutely. That's unfortunate. Um, when I was over there, for me, the real magic thing was, was two things. Riding on a boat on the Nile in a Faluka mm-hmm. and then going over to the villages on the other side that have no tourism and just wandering through the villages. Wandering through the village. Bicycling is a great option. Biking there. through the village. That's if exactly you're the right time of year, biking is, is, is a great option because then you can go wherever you, you want to. So you go to Luxor. Every tourist is there. You've got all the tour groups. You've got all the goofy, clichetic shows on mm-hmm. stage and the snake charmers and all this kind of junk. Mm-hmm. You go to the famous sites. Uh, you take the ferry across, you have a local guide to show you around if you like, or, yep. or you um, have taxis. You can hire your own car for peanuts Absolutely. over there. Yeah. And then you give it another, uh, another look. You've done the touristy stuff. Then you go over there with a bicycle and you explore the villages. 
That's a, it's a great way to go. And this is just a cultural scavenger hunt. You don't have a list of sites to see. It's not no. a museum. No. And, and also, if you go, you know, sort of five, ten kilometers north or south, you know, bicycle, that's nothing. It's flat. Mm-hmm. We're in a river valley. Five, ten kilometers north or south of Luxor, and you're out of the whole perimeter of the sort of tourist concentration. And then you got the real and Nile. Genuine Nile, genuine Nile villages. Wow. People who, for all that there are thousands of tourists just down the road, don't ever see. Yeah. Just, just talking to you brings back memories of that. I want to go back. It's just, it was so beautiful. And after a long day of sightseeing, this is something that's kind of decadent and kind of uh, you feel a little bit like some uh, British Raj or something like that. But you hire your felucca. And you got a guy who's very hard working and he pulls you up and down the river and they, and they sail if there's a wind, I guess, and they bring you your tea and you and your travel partner are lounging away on your boat. Yeah. Tell me about these felucca. Oh, they feel like big, heavy boats, big, very, very heavy, heavy, heavy boats. This is the river transport, the standard river transport for Egypt and, and still used in, in many areas. Nowadays, of course, it looks or they're more designed to take, uh, you know, tourists very, on a trip. Very reasonably priced. Very reasonably priced. Negotiate. Negotiate. you got your own private sailboat. Yeah. Traditional old, yeah. I mean, you probably see it in the papyrus if you know where to look. Yeah. It's a, it's a similar sort of thing they've been using for And you negotiate, drive a deal, shop around, make an appointment, and it's cooler. It's several degrees cooler on the river, I found, than, Always, yeah. than on the land. There's so, the wind. Nice, breezy way to spend an evening, very romantic with the sun going down. Absolutely. And, Faluca. And, and, you know, you, if you want them to pre- you know, prepare tea on board, you want to take a picnic on board, you want to take a bottle of wine, a bottle of beer on board, you know, it's a, a marvelous way to go. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, another, see, Luxor to me is a town I can spend more time in than most small towns because you got the touristy town with all the shopping and the great museum there. And you got the famous sites. There must be six or eight world-class Absolutely. temples that you just got to see. I mean, yeah. they are really Karnak is just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. That's what I was going to say was mind-blowing. Yeah. I was almost going to think mind-blowing, it's kind of like a, too overused. But no, mind-blowing is Karnak. Well, a little aside, the first time I visited Kar- Karnak was in the very early 80s. It's when I was living in Greece. And I had been to the Acropolis, mm-hmm. which is a, f- a fantastic site, you know, an etch in everyone's mind. Everyone knows the photograph of the Acropolis. Right. Um, and the, the Parthenon flew down to Cairo, went to visit Karnak and thought, this is it. The Acropolis was tiny. <laughs> the Parthenon didn't exist in comparison. Cool. Now, from Luxor also, I was saying, okay, you do that, then you do the villages, then you do the felucca, and then you get together with a bunch of tourists and you hire a small-time operator tour guide with a minibus or you book into an all-day tour and you go down the Nile to Aswan. Yeah. And you get a tour of some very important temples en route. Yeah. Kenna, Komombo. Yeah, some beautiful Those temples. Excellent sites. And, and then you actually see this huge Edith. dam... Mm. Edfu, that Edfu, was the one. Yeah, the, Edfu. The, the, yeah, the paint. I mean, there's so much of the painted, the painted uh, yeah. frescoes. Oh, not the, frescoes, but the paint is still on. Imagine that, four thousand years old or whatever. And and, and uh, Edfu was my favorite mm. temple. And then you get down to Aswan and you see this mighty, mighty dam. Mm. And uh, it's a beautiful day to see just a lot of village life along the Nile River. Is that a reasonable day trip from Luxor? From Luxor to Aswan, it's a reasonable day trip. It's quite you no, know, it's, it's it's a longish distance. I mean, it'd mm-hmm. be a long, you need to start early and it's know, a long day. Come back relatively late. I would suggest taking you know, a night or two nights out in Aswan. Really? Yeah. What would you do in Aswan besides see the dam? Um, uh, chill out. Chill out. It's a great. The, it's a very very different atmosphere. Now we're down in Nubia. Really, that's different. The, which is different from sort of mainstream Egypt. The, the Nubians have their own language. They have their own history, which is not Arabic at all. I mean, they have more in common with the uh, Nilotic tribes of even further up uh, Nubia. Yeah. Is that where we get the word nubile? Mm, I'm because not sure if you think about perhaps. the picture, the old paintings yeah. of Nubians yeah. in the ancient art, I, mm. I remember these are Nubians and they look nubile. Well, the, Maybe it is. Well, I, I don't Who know knows? Etymology yeah. of that one, but you could well be right. right <laughs> okay, now. let's say the nubile. Yeah. Nubians, okay. Yeah. And from there, the ultimate thing, I have not done this, is to go down to Abu Simbel. To go to Abu Simbel. It's a fantastic site. Generally, you fly down. You can fly down. It's an hour less than an hour. It's just a, you know you're up in there and you're down from Aswan. You could hire a, a driver take you down. You could get a taxi take you down. Tell yeah. me about Abu Simbel. It, it's the they they moved it when they uh, well, well when they built the high dam in in the sixties, they were obviously flooding a large large area, um, and the Abu Simbel was a massive huge temple um, constructed under Ramses the Great as a sign of that this is the frontier of Egypt. If you come in into this land, you have to face somebody my size. And my size is, ooh, how is it? I'm mean, at 80 wow. feet. 80 so people size. coming in from deep in Africa, they, this was their first indication that you go any further here, you're dealing with this, one dealing, mighty pharaoh. Yeah, we're dealing with a big pharaoh. I didn't realize So that. this was on the riverside. It was obviously going to be flooded with the creation of Lake Nasser, which is behind wow. the high dam. Wow. So there's a massive UNESCO project in the 60s to slice it up and move it. Save it. Uh, save it, yeah. And lift it above the flood and reestablish it. They actually so, cut uh, it into slices? Yeah. A lot of stone? Ah, masses of stone. Wow. Masses of stone, yeah. 
Huh. It's the sort of thing that could probably not be done now because it would cost too much money. Wow. Now, the Nile River really is the lifeblood of mm. Egypt. It, it is today and it always has been. Uh, well, Herodotus, who was writing in, what, the 5th century before Christ, uh, said that Egypt is the gift of the Nile. That's right. Without well, the Nile, the Nile no well, you, you fly over it and you see this green yeah. ribbon, lush green uh, around the, the river, all the, the, the uh, vegetation and so on, and then it's just surrounded by vast deserts. Yes. This ribbon that goes north and south. And uh, even in the ancient times, what was it? The sun would uh, the sun would rise in the east and it would set in the west. And people, it was all kind of revolving around the Nile. And people would, what would they do? They would live in the you Live in the east, east and bury themselves in the dead. Bury themselves in, in the, the west. west yeah. where, so you live where the sun rised mm -hmm. and you buried your dead in the west where the sun set. Mm -hmm. Consequently, all the pyramids are on the west bank of the Nile. Absolutely, yeah. And most of the art we look at is art for dead people. Uh, yes, well, yes, Arts for sacred purposes, which was related to life after death because they were firm believers in that. Yeah. Oh, so for 4,000 years ago, they'd um, put you away and the, the, the pyramids were basically sort of like baggage insurance for the trip into the afterlife. You'd go in there with all of your valuables yeah, you know, and so on, your, your, take yeah, your barber, yeah. take yeah. your cook. Yeah. Is that Absolutely. just touristy kind of junk or is that true? Uh, no, no, I mean, you wouldn't take your, necessarily your barber or your cook, but you'd take your razor and you'd take your pots and pans. Okay. But um, Take your favorite women. Uh, often representations thereof. I mean, we have our archaeologists have found bodies within who are clearly walled up. They and were. supposedly, you would wake up in the next life with all of your favorite stuff. Yeah. But the pyramids actually served as big markers for the people with the most fancy valuables, and the grave robbers time yeah. after time got them. Hence the shift to bur burying in the Valley of yeah, Kings. Yeah, I mean, time after hidden. time, these big shots would wake up in heaven with absolutely nothing. <laughs> yes, they've been Ripped cleared off. out. Yeah, they've been cleared out. Yeah. So what they did was yeah. they hid their tombs in the Valley of the Kings, Kings right? Yeah. yeah. Now, that's where we got King Tut and so on. Yeah, King uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. It's now open there as well. Is that right? Yeah. Now, he was not a, any big deal. We just discovered his tomb intact, right? Exactly. That's the whole thing. No, he was very young, didn't reign for very long. He was sort part of, a, of a, almost a sort of heretical Sort of a set. mediocre pharaoh. Yeah. Ancient Jerry Ford. <laughs> well, Little American jokes. All right. Yeah. How's that museum in Cairo? The National Museum? Yeah. It, it's fantastic. I mean, it's overwhelming. They're in the process of building a brand new spanking modern one outside of Cairo, which is, is you know, it's well time because wow. this, this museum that's it's housed in the building was constructed in the late 19th century. And it's like a mixture between I mean, an incredible junk shop and a, the set of a Bela Lugosi film. And it, it's, really? It's overwhelming. But the majority of Tutankhamun's artifacts are, are on display there. But it's a must-see. I mean, it is In so many cases and cultures, you go to Mexico, you want to see the National Museum in Mexico City before you go out into the countryside. Mm. You go to Greece, you want to see the National Museum in Athens before you go out. Go to Turkey, you've got to go to that great museum in Ankara. And in Egypt, I'm a big fan of seeing that great museum in Cairo. Yeah. And then you go out into the countryside Absolutely. and it makes more sense. There is, however, I mean, don't ignore the new provincial museums that they're building. There's been a, new, a program over the past 10, 15 years to sort of decentralize uh, somewhat. The, the museum in Luxor that you mentioned, mm -hmm. which is, is relatively new, was opened in the late 80s, I think. Mm -hmm. It's an excellent little museum. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't have the scope. It is good. I was very impressed by that museum. place. I'm talking with Colin Clement, who's a friend of mine who leads tours with me around Europe. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Rick. Meet the woman who books my travels and why, in the Internet age, I still rely on a living, breathing travel agent. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Evet, hep beraber Rick Steves'le seyahat edelim. That was Turkish for Let's all together travel with Rick Steves. Haydi hep beraber Rick Steves'le seyahat edelim. I'm Rick Steves and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now I'm talking with Elizabeth Holmes, who runs Elizabeth Holmes Travel. And uh, she's been in the travel business for 25 years. And we're going to try to get an insight into how the travel business works these days with Elizabeth. So uh, thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you for asking me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, you know, for me, a, a fundamental question is exactly what does an international traveler need to use a travel agent for? I think that um, most people come to us to um, plan their trip. They have an idea in their head what they'd like to do, roughly if they want to go to one country or another. In Europe especially, they might want to cover two or three. They come to us with their ideas, and I think oftentimes we'd help them map out what they'd like to do and help them with the mechanics of going from one place to another. Plan if they want should fly into one city and then out of another or um, taking trains between spots and maybe then a car for two or three days, let's say. It's the mechanics of the whole trip 
and putting it together. Now, you mentioned open jaw. That's a good example. A lot of people would think that they would just sort of fly in and out of the same city. This is one of the banes. Uh, this is a, a travel agent's nightmare in a way. It's so difficult for us to get people to understand this open jaw concept that you can fly into one city and out of another and it's still a round-trip ticket. So there's and no penalty, you, no, no extra fee. No, Well, you take half of the one, one round trip and half of the other. So let's say it's $500 to fly into London, 600 to fly into Paris. It's 550 to fly into London and out of Paris. And even if that's a little more expensive, it's, when all the dust well, settles, it probably saves them time and right, money. Right, and money. They don't have to cross the channel again. That's great. But you have to pull this out of people. It's like <laughs> you're pulling information because... They have an idea that round trip into one city mm. is the cheapest way to travel. A lot of people know how the hub system works in the United States. And if you're going to uh, uh, Seattle to Omaha, you'll change planes in Denver, most likely, I suppose. And uh, in Europe, you have the just as uh, busy and sophisticated sort of uh, network. And would that work also in Asia and S South America and so on? Yes, certainly. Probably we know like Japan is Tokyo and Osaka. Thailand is Bangkok. There probably aren't as many hub cities, but they're bigger airports, far right. larger airports that feed from there. When I'm thinking Europe, mm -hmm. I'm, I would recommend people think any reasonably sized city you can fly to. You could fly from Seattle to Vilnius in Lithuania and then home from Malaga in southern Spain. And it sounds like a real complicated situation, but really it's just within an hour of your arrival in Copenhagen, there's probably a connecting flight to Vilnius and one to southern right, Spain. Right. Now, does this also work with car rental? Certainly, if it's within the same country. But then you'd want to go with a bigger car rental company that would have more offices, I would suppose. In one well, there are. The car rental companies, if we're talking about Europe again, is they're, they're, Europe Car is a big agency in, in Europe. Avis and Hertz are there. And so um, car rentals in Europe are very popular, and there are a lot of cars in Europe. You can pick up a car at the port in France and drop it at Versailles if you wanted no to. No problem whatsoever. And that's something a travel agent could advise you on. Yes. Okay. The trend these days is to go to the web. Uh, and a lot of people are very, very committed to the web for booking plane tickets. Why would I go to a, a, a living, breathing travel agent instead of just going into my uh, home office and booking on the web? May I start with number one, two, and three? Number one, you've got a person on the other end. That alone has got to be a wonderful feeling. But the travel business, I agree with you, it has changed so dramatically in these last few years. And now we do work for fee-for-services. So you call us and, and we can answer your questions instantly. If you want to know why you can't go on January 17th, because that's the day you really want to go, and it's $300 more, we can say that's because it's the first day that school's out or the beginning of the summer holidays, and everybody's going that day. So number one, you're talking to someone will help you plan your trip. Number two, when you're away, you have the security of us being at the other end. Oftentimes, for instance, we were talking about car rentals. People are maybe a little worried about renting a car in Europe, but we've said, you know, once you get there, if you are in Tuscany and you think you want a car to the little hill towns for three days, call us. We'll help you. Hmm. Well, that's a good we concept. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but mm -hmm. you will be traveling uh, wherever, in, in Thailand or in uh, Brazil or mm -hmm. in France, and you can call back home and say, we want to rent a car, and then or email back home. I suppose email would make a lot of sense. And then you could arrange that car rental or that change in flight or, or whatever and email back the information. So you have an agent working for you from your home base. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If and you want to change your flights, a perfect example, people talk about not being able to get in touch with the airline. And they okay. keep calling and calling. Now, can a travel agent get their hands on every fare I can get on the web? Yes, and more so. So how does a travel agent make money exactly? Well, the consulting part, it's tacked onto the cost of the ticket. We sell a ticket. We use consolidators, which are wholesale fares, and published fares. And on some tickets, we have to tack on a service fee. I'd say generally 50 to to $100. So is that up front with the client? Yes, when it is. When you go is. to any travel agent, the client should be able to say, what is the fee you're going to add on? 
that's one way to make the money. In the old days, you just made money from commissions, That's right, right. and those, are, slowly, those days are gone. Those are gone. Completely no more commissions gone. at all. No more commissions. But you buy a ticket from a consolidator, that's a wholesaler, and then you can sell that ticket forever you think the market will bear? That's right. You buy a, a net fair ticket. Okay, so an airline is selling tickets in big chunks to wholesalers. They sell them to travel agents. And it's, then travel agents mark them up as they think they can. Right. But the air, it's really not the airlines are selling tickets to a consolidator. They are giving a consolidator a contract hmm. to sell tickets at a lower price than the published fare. It's a secondary pricing system that airlines is perfectly legal and they'd like to kind of hide it from you. But mm-hmm. what it is, it's to ensure that they're going to fill those planes at no matter what the price. So they give a contract to a consolidator, and the consolidator usually adds only maybe $30 a ticket, Mm -hmm. and then travel agents buy those tickets from them. We make a reservation, and we pay for those tickets through the consolidator, marking them up at 10% or whatever our markup is. But there's your commission right there. That's right. We don't have to charge the client a service fee when we use consolidator ticket. In, in your business right now, you're running a small travel agency in Seattle, and you would make money off of commissions on insurance, off tours you sell, off cruises, off hotels, off airfare. Um, in general terms, in, in the travel business, how does that all stack up? Is a travel agent now relying mostly on these fees, or are they being pushed into selling tours and cruises because that's where there's bigger commissions? I would say that they're relying mostly on fees because tours and cruises are also cutting back on commissions. And you mentioned hotels. Uh, It's pretty hard to track hotels and get commissions from hotels, especially when you're booking hotels internationally. So that's um, easy enough said, but commissions don't come that easily from hotels. If you're planning a trip with a travel agent, you should kind of bank on spending $50 to $100 for your fee. And then you've got a consultant who can help you out. Yes. So you're, you're buying their time. And it's a balancing act for us, whether the published fare is cheaper than the consolidator fare. And if it is, then we have to charge you a fee. But oftentimes the consolidator fare is less expensive than the published fare, and we don't charge you a fee. And a customer should be able to ask real straight, now how is this fare being derived? Exactly. Because I'm confused. when I If it's a I published fare, if it's a consolidator fare, how much is it marked up? Would mm-hmm. I save if I go to the web? It, it's kind of discouraging yeah. from Point of view. Travel is not the romantic. <laughs> Where is it going? How is it going to be changing in the future? Is it going to, are airlines going to be selling direct? I don't think so because I don't think you can get in touch with any airline. Fr- Have you tried a, phoning it's, them it's lately? A, it's a frustrating thing. It's a frustrating thing. On an, another issue, I'm curious, is it just me or, or is it true that it seems like most travel agents are women? You're quite right. Why is I that? Think that? I think that women are probably more adept at giving service. If that's not a... So it's a real people thing. I think so. Okay. Because it, a, it, it, I, would, I don't know what the statistics are, might but it be seems very, like there must be 80% of that. Yes, you're right. Women. And yeah. also it was always been a, a lower-paying position, and um, probably women, you know, didn't have an education mm-hmm. in the old days and went into being an agent. So there's that momentum I don't know that why, but today. yes, I have to say that I think that women are better travel agents than men. Well, you have to have patience dealing with people one-on-one and Uh probably answering, uh, like, endless questions. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people think about being a travel agent because they can travel. But my my feeling is a travel agent spends a better part of their life looking at a computer screen, talking on a telephone, and when they do travel, they go on fam trips. They still have to have time to travel. You still have to, you know, you've got a job. What's a fam trip? (laughs) A familiarization trip, that's what that means. And it's mostly um, given by hotels or tour companies to show you their products. Because my wife and I right now are talking to an agent about uh, Mazatlan versus Puerto Vallarta for a little break right. in the west coast of Mexico. And the agent we're talking to sounds like she really knows those hotels. Mm-hmm. Likely she went down there on a fam trip. That's right. <laughs> okay, I've got a bunch of questions that we've just fielded from a lot of our listeners and so on. I'd just like to go through them. And if you can help me uh, straighten some of these ideas out. Are there any student airfare deals out there these days that are worth getting excited about? There are, but student airfares are always worth it when you're going for 
a long period of time. That's what student airfares began, mm -hmm. why they began. So they're for people that are going to Europe or for semesters. Weeks? No, six, no longer. six months to a year. Okay, so if you're going to study in Europe, that's when a student airfare is, yes, worth okay. looking into. What about standby these days? There's no such thing as standby anymore. In the anymore. old days, you could go to the airport, standby. That's right. If they had a seat open, they'd say, sure, you can get on half yeah. price. No, no None such of that thing. At all. None at all. Hmm, that's too bad. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who are uh, locking? It's a little confusion now. When you lock your bags, can you lock your bags for an international flight? Do they break the locks open? What's yes, the story they do. On that? I guess they will. They can break the locks open. I think you might as well keep them unlocked. I've never locked my bag in thirty years of travel. I haven't either. I've never to be lost quite anything. honest. So you've not had clients that have had their <laughs> I bags have, rifled. No, never. Okay, so our our consensus there is: don't worry about locking your bags. Exactly. It can happen, but of the millions of travelers that go, I, I don't think they can get away with. No. You, you hear scare stories and so on. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the latest on these computer, these new um, passports with the computer chips in them that get all of your uh, personal information on them? I don't like it. Why not? I think it's taking away from my personal freedom, and I just feel uncomfortable about it. People will be able to scan from a distance you and know where you've Who been I am and where and you're where going been. and what you're doing. It's and, just um, it sounds awful to me. I'm sorry. It's hard for me to discuss that. Electronic tickets. Uh, a year ago, we could travel agencies could issue paper tickets, but. The airlines have um, charged such fees now. You have to pay 90 to to $100 to get a paper ticket. So we are now into electronic tickets. And we've been talking about this lately in our office. And we're just trying to teach people how to read electronic tickets because I think it's so important to know what that covers, what that piece of paper, <laughs> although it's electronic, covers. So you get your electronic printout from you get you your get paper printout. You get a piece printout. of paper that says this is not valid for transportation. Point is, you could go to the airport with nothing but your uh, personal ID. And, or, and yes, and you could just you say, "I think I have a flight at one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to Denver." Can That's a you? good thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm, I guess so. If the airlines can handle it. Yeah. Um, it I guess if there's some chaos in the air airport, you're better off with a paper ticket. It would be nice to have a paper ticket. In an ideal world, but as months go by, that will be less and less likely that yes. you'll be able to have that. Yeah. How long in advance do you need to book a ticket for an international trip? It depends where you're going, what time of year. It varies dramatically. But for Europe, I would say if you're planning to go in spring or summer, the more popular times, I'd look at three to six months ahead of time. Are tickets available six months in advance? Do you yes, know what the pairs are going to yes, be? Yes, and we can. Well, most agencies will give you good advice on whether you should buy now. They can tell if these airfares are just too high mm -hmm. and say, hey, just hold off for another but, month or two. But five months before my next trip to Germany, I buy a ticket, and all of a sudden, a month later, the price goes down. Am I stuck with that ticket? You uh, are stuck if the flights on that day that you're traveling on those exact flights are full. You're stuck with that ticket. If I want to change, what does it cost me? Um, sometimes you can't change, but I would say def, uh, probably around $200. 200 bucks to change. So you get a cheap ticket, it's inflexible. Usually non-refundable. It's one thing I tell people. I mean, if you buy the cheapest ticket out there, it's going to be the least flexible mm -hmm. and the most crowded. Mm -hmm. you, you want flexibility, you can get it. Can't it costs you a small fortune yeah, nowadays. But you can always buy yeah. flexibility, yeah. but you've got to you're you've gonna be spending pay double. For it. Yeah. That's right. No, you pay more than double. Generally, just in airlines in general, which airlines do people like and which ones don't they like? Americans like foreign carriers. Why they, is that? I think that they feel that they get more service from them, that they're not shepherded like sheep in uh, with foreign carriers. Um, I think that uh, that's generally true as well. The service for the entire journey seems to be uh, more personal. Mm -hmm. well, what about reliability? I think they're certainly just as reliable as mm -hmm. So that would be if you're flying carriers. from the States over to uh, Pacific Rim destinations, flying uh, Japan Airlines Central America, or, flying yes, to Europe? Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Domestically, what do people like best these days? What airlines? Mm -hmm. That's a tough question. I don't know what to say because we're in a age of teetering airlines, so I don't think it's what you like. It's who you can count on <laughs> being around when you're going. Wow. If you've got a trip coming up, international trip, kind of a complicated trip, how do you know if your travel agent knows enough to really help you out? I think that when you call your travel agent and tell them where you'd like to go, 
a nice, a good travel agent will say, look, I don't know enough about this destination, but so-and-so in my office does. And usually travel agencies have different people that specialize in different areas of the world. There are cruise agencies nowadays that deal just with cruises. So if it says Cruise Company, Inc., mm-hmm. don't go to them to buy a ticket to mm-hmm. Asia. Good. Elizabeth Holmes runs Elizabeth Holmes Travel in Seattle at elizabethholmes.com. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. Thank you. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. In Lama Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Once I get you up there, where the air is rarefied, we'll just glide. Starry-eyed Once I get you up there I'll be holding you so near You may hear Angels cheer Cause we're together Weather-wise It's such a lovely day Just say the words And we'll beat the birds Down to our Apulco Bay It's perfect For a flying Honeymoon They say Come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away This is Travel with Rick Steves Come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly Let's fly away. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. You can also participate in discussion boards on a variety of travel topics and submit your questions and comments. That's at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.